We are all influenced greatly by who we read, what we hear, the words and the actions that we take into our hearts. And for me, it's been Jacques Ellul, a French theologian whom I, whom I quoted last week, Roger Williams, a pre-Revolutionary War pastor, founder of Rhode Island, Brendan Manning, an ex-Catholic priest and alcoholic. True. Few have influenced my thinking more than these men, save one, a man named Clarence Jordan. He was born July 29, 1912 in Talbot County, Georgia. And if you don't know where Talbot County, Georgia is, it's okay. Nobody really knows where Talbot County, Georgia is except Lynn Hedges right there. And he died on this week, October 29, 1969, before I was ever born. And yet I feel like he has been a kind of spiritual father for me. And why not? Like me, he was from Georgia. Like, like me, he started out as a Baptist but could not stay there. Like me, when you hear the old scratchy recordings of his sermons and his lectures, he sounds more like Andy Griffith than an educated pulpiteer. At the height of the Great Depression, he graduated from the University of Georgia with a degree in agricultural science, and then enrolled in and graduated from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary with a Ph.D. in New Testament Greek. At seminary, he met the woman who would become his wife. Her name was Florence, and he said to her, if you want to be the wife of the pastor of the First Baptist Church, you don't want to marry me. I'm going back to Georgia to do something for the poor. Florence married him anyway. And in 1942, Clarence and Florence Jordan bought 440 acres outside of America's Georgia and established Koinonia Farms. Koinonia is the Greek word for community, for fellowship, and the Jordans set out to create just that, a farming community where men and women, blacks and whites, rich and poor, could live together by three simple principles. Number one, as God's children, all people are family. Two, love is the alternative to violence and power. And three, those who lived at Koinonia would share their possessions and their life together. Jordan describes his intentions best. It was his dream that Koinonia would be, quote, a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. And it would become a place where followers of Jesus would take Jesus' words seriously, put them into practice, and live by faith. And Jordan defined faith as, quote, a life lived in scorn of the consequences. No matter what others do, no matter what others say, no matter how well or how poorly you are treated or received, Follow Jesus and let the consequences of following Jesus take care of themselves. It's worth asking what turned Clarence in this radical direction. Indeed, he could have used his gifts to become pastor of a large, wealthy church or used his scholarship to become a tenured professor. Why this harder, more revolutionary path? Well, by his own testimony, it goes back to when he was 12 years old. He was with his family at a big tent revival. I sweat thinking about those. <laughs> it was at this meeting that Clarence made his public profession of faith, 12 years of age. He went down through the sawdust, if 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. To where the preacher was standing. A slightly out of tune piano was banging away. And the choir was singing with all of their might. And Clarence noticed one man in particular in that choir. A big strapping man who was just bellowing out the hymn we sang today. Love lifted me. The following night. The night after Clarence Jordan publicly declared himself a Christian. He was awakened during the night by the agonizing sound of a man crying for help. He looked out his bedroom window and there in the yard next to his home was a black man being beaten and tortured by a group of white men. And the one leading the violence was the same man who had been singing Love Lifted Me in the revival choir just the night before. And at 12 years of age, Clarence Jordan knew that something was wrong. Something was rotten. And it changed the trajectory of his life. Ultimately putting him at odds with his neighbors, his friends, his family, and his church. The Rehoboth Baptist Church in America's Georgia excommunicated him, his wife, and everyone who lived at Koinonia Farm because they shared space with black people. America's was a tough place. Somebody just whispered it still is. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that Alabama's Bull Connor had nothing on America's America's Sheriff Fred Chappelle, who was, quote, the meanest man in God's world. And for Dr. King to say such a thing. Here's what happened one Sunday during Advent at an America's church. Clarence wrote, So us all and us all is a legitimate southern word. Right? So us all went to that million dollar church. And when we sat down, the folks in front of us moved away. The folks back of us moved away. And there we were, a little island in the sanctuary. Shortly, the chairman of the hospitality committee came steaming down the aisle, face flushed. Pointing to a young black fellow who was with me, he said, he can't stay here. But we just kept singing. So this fellow came around and stood right in front of this young black man named McGee and said, come on and use the N-word. You got to get out of here. You are disturbing divine worship. Clarence said, now I didn't know where this divine worship was but I certainly know who was disturbing it. The chairman got so infuriated, he lunged over the bench and grabbed McGee and started dragging him toward the door. And when they got us all outside, the deacons formed a big line and stood between us and the door to the sanctuary. And the pastor was standing with them, and I turned to him and said, you know there's something wrong about tonight, something awfully wrong on a night when people are singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace toward all, for a man to be dragged out of the house of God because of the color of the skin that the Almighty God gave him. And the pastor said, I agree. But this is our policy. And I told him, well, everything is integrated now except the churches and the jails. At least there's hope for the jails. 
The local community organized against Koinonia that began to boycott all their farming products. Their produce stands were firebombed. For nearly a year, machine gun fire was sprayed nightly into Koinonia. Their fields were salted. Their pecan trees were cut down. Their tractors and farming equipment were destroyed. The Ku Klux Klan held a rally on the farm, burned a cross, and told Clarence that he and the others would be killed if he didn't sell the farm and leave town. A grand jury began investigating Clarence and Koinonia under the accusation that they were communists. Jordan responded to the accusation saying, Sharing my goods with those whom I live with doesn't make me a communist any more than me standing here with you makes me a jackass. He always had those kind of slogans, including the phrase that saved Koinonia Farms. When it became clear that the farm would be unable to sustain itself selling goods locally, Clarence began a mail-order pecan business that pecan. Not wrong. Pecan. See, you're an Alabama fan and you disagree with me about everything. He began a mail-order pecan business. And his marketing slogan was genius. Marketing majors, pay attention. Help us ship the nuts out of Georgia. And some of us got out. He was good with his words. He was quick. A few more of the things he would say. He'd say, a church in Georgia just set up a big $25,000 granite fountain on its lawn, circulating water to the tune of a thousand gallons a minute, and that ought to be enough to satisfy any Baptist. But what on earth is a church doing taking God Almighty's money in a time of great need like this and setting up a fountain to bubble water around? I was thirsty, and you built me a fountain. And once Clarence was given a tour of an immaculately built church by the senior pastor, and as they neared the end of the tour and stepped outside, the pastor looked up at the cross on top of the steeple and said, Dr. Jordan, even that cross up there cost us $10,000. To which Clarence said, well, buddy, you got gypped because there was a time and place when Christians could get one of those for free. For all of his accomplishments, Clarence Jordan's lasting legacy will be twofold beyond civil rights. First, there is the Cotton Patch Gospel. It is his best known work printed after his death. The Cotton Patch Gospel is a translation of the Greek New Testament into the vernacular and the times of South Georgia in the 1960s. It was not intended for scholars or seminary students. It was a great work of, con- of contextualization for the poor black and white sharecroppers who could not understand the king's English. And you'll understand a little better why he was not always an accepted man. In the Cotton Patch Gospel, Jesus is not born in Bethlehem, but in Gainesville, Georgia. There is no room at the hospital, so they lay him not in a manger, but in an apple box. The scribes and the Pharisees in the New Testament are transformed into the good white church people of the South. And the sinners and the tax collectors are the black sons and daughters of slaves, poor white trash, and redneck sharecroppers. Jesus isn't crucified in Jerusalem. He is lynched by the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention. A few of my favorite passages from the Cotton Patch. 
Are you still with me? This guy, John, was dressed in blue jeans and a leather jacket, living on cornbread and collard greens. Folks were coming to him from Atlanta and all over Georgia, and as they owned up to their crooked ways, he baptized them and dipped them in the Chattahoochee River. Jesus began to make clear to his students that he had to go to Atlanta and go through terrible things at the hands of the leading church people. But old Rocky, that's Peter, collared him and said, Not on your life, I love this one, I will be dead blamed if that ever happens to you. <laughs> Jesus whirled and said, Get away from me, you devil, you are gumming up the works for me. I'm telling you the fact, you can push a pig through a knot hole easier than a rich person can get in on the God movement. Jesus went to the First Baptist Church of Atlanta. He pitched out the whole finance committee. He tore up the investment and the endowment records. He scrapped the long-range expansion plans. My house shall be known for its commitment to God, he shouted, but you have turned it into a religious racket. So they left the vault on the resurrection morning and filled with fear and great excitement, they ran, ran like mad to tell his students. And what do you know? Jesus met them on the way and said, Howdy, y'all. <laughs> now quit being so scared and run along now into Alabama. <laughs> and you'll see me there. Saul was harassing and threatening to kill followers of the Lord. He got some papers for the Chattanooga City Council, asked them permission to arrest and return to Atlanta any men and women he might find there taking Christianity seriously. And when he stopped for gas just outside of town, all of a sudden there was a flash from the sky surrounding him. He fell to the pavement and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you being so mean to me? Isn't that beautiful? Not only did Jordan write in such a way that the people to whom he ministered would understand the words of the gospel, he lived in such a way that they saw it and could imitate it. What a challenge for the church that he still gives us, and what a challenge to the church. Can we speak and live and love in such a way that people experience the gospel? If we begin to grasp what Clarence Jordan taught, That the proof that God raised Jesus from the dead is not just an empty tomb, but the full hearts of transformed disciples, then we just might begin to live our lives built on the words and the works of Jesus. And of course, the second part of his legacy involves partnership housing. In July 1968, a man named Millard Fuller moved to Koinonia Farms with his wife Linda. Millard was a multimillionaire. He had been struggling on how best to follow Jesus and ended up giving away his entire fortune. And he and Clarence birthed this idea that poor people, God's people, could be provided decent, affordable housing if the church would live out a few simple, radical ideas. Millard and Clarence began building simple, decent homes with volunteers and sold these homes to qualifying families, and the family would pay no interest, only the cost of the building. And as the house payments were made, these payments would go into a fund for humanity that would precipitate even more houses being built. Millard Fuller took the idea nationally and internationally, and Habitat for Humanity was born. Millard Fuller became my friend before his death, as did other members of his family. 
And I can only smile every time that I see Linda or one of their children. And I shake their hand or hug their neck and I realize I am one handshake removed from Clarence Jordan himself. And every person who has ever volunteered on a Habitat or Fuller Center project or has given money to sponsor a home, in effect, you are taking hands with Clarence Jordan to continue his good work in the world. Clarence did not live to see the first house completed. October 1969, this week, he was sitting in his writing shack that's still there on Koinonia Farms, translating the Cotton Patch Gospel, and he died of a heart attack. He was 59 years old. The community still reviled him to such a degree that the coroner and the medical inspector, examiner, refused to come to the farm to pronounce his death. The county instructed Millard Fuller, who was with him when he died, that the best they could do was to rent an ambulance from Albany and bring the body to the hospital. Millard Fuller thought about it a minute and concluded that Clarence wouldn't want that kind of money spent on him in death. So Miller loaded him into the front seat of his car and buckled him in. And off to the hospital they went. Laughing the whole way because he knew Clarence would get such a kick out of such a scene. Clarence was buried in an unmarked grave at Cornania Farms in a pinewood crate. And today, Millard Fuller's grave sits next to his. Just a few weeks before Clarence died, a reporter asked him this. When you get to heaven and the Lord meets you and says, Clarence, I wonder if you could tell me in the next five minutes what you did while you were down there on earth. What would you tell the Lord? And Clarence answered, I'd tell the Lord to come on back when He had a little more time. I share his story today because, yes, it's the anniversary of his death, because of his influence on me, and because, whether you realize it or not, his profound influence on what simple faith is. But also because of the impact he can still have. He once quipped that disciples of Jesus are like gasoline in a coil. They are like gunpowder compressed in a shell. You don't need much, and all you need is a little spark. And in that small, tiny, restricted place, incubated, powerful things can happen. And it's done by living in scorn of the consequences. By faith, we follow the radical, revolutionary, world-turned-upside-down way of Jesus. Not to be heroes, not to be agents of change, not to prove anything. But as students of Jesus, we go out, quoting Clarence, we go out each week to classify ourselves as true disciples, followers of Jesus, not simply His admirers. And I conclude today with the Lord's Prayer that maybe you have never heard before. Luke 11, 2-4. The Lord's Prayer via the Cotton Patch Gospel. 
Father, may your name be taken seriously. May your movement spread. Sustaining bread, grant us each day and free us from our sins, even as we release everyone indebted to us. And don't let us get all tangled up. What a great prayer. May we pray together.